Pearson Ravitt's story begins with Dr. Stephanie Pearson, a passionate OBGYN at the height of her career. But when a shoulder injury struck during a precipitous delivery, her dreams were shattered, leaving her unable to practice medicine. Determined to make a difference, Dr. Pearson became an advocate for her peers, guiding them through the complex disability process. Alongside insurance expert Scott Ravitz, Dr. Pearson founded Pearson Ravitz, a company determined to approach insurance differently. Together, they set their mission to educate and empower physicians to protect their most valuable asset, their income, and the most important people in their life, their family. Today, Pearson Ravitz serves the medical community in all 50 states. At Pearson Ravitz, they understand the unique concerns of physicians. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Ravitz builds human connections before they create quotes. Life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness or injury could leave you and your family in a devastating financial situation. But with little planning and guidance, you can prepare for every possibility. Visit PearsonRavitz.com to schedule your consultation with a Pearson Ravitz advisor. Hey, this is Brad Block, host of the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. This is a personal and professional development podcast for physicians where we have experts on the show that try to teach us everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. Have you ever been interested in being a physician on an advisory board? Who wouldn't? You get paid for giving your opinion. So how do you get on an advisory board? Is there a Tinder app for that? Well, sort of. Stay tuned and find out. Dr. Vilpakella, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Brad. So you wear a ton of hats. You were a practicing emergency medicine physician, and then you, you got your MBA, and then everything seems to have exploded after that because you've got this whole medical expert witness business. You're a partner at U.S. Acute Care Solutions. You're a venture advisor at MBX Capital, a venture partner at Bonaventure Equity, and medical and business development director at New Life Solutions, and CEO and co-founder at Curato Health. So first, am I missing anything? Was there anything that you're doing now professionally that I've left off that list? Oh, you said professionally. So I said the most important roles are going to be you know, husband and father, but yes, that, that you, I think you covered it. You know, I think that there's a lot of titles in there and there's a lot of things, but I think it would be good to just maybe um, explain the origin of how I got to be doing so many things. I think at the heart of it, at the heart of it, I'm an ER doc, right? So the ER docs, we notoriously have a very short attention span and we're always looking to do stuff, new, interesting things. So we are generalists at heart. It's a the blessing and a curse. People say we're um, experts of nothing or masters of none, jack of all trades. But I think that's actually a good thing, right? And I started to embrace that as I got further into my career. Because I've always been, the thinking always was that if you made a transition out of clinical medicine and you did something else, whether you get into any one of these fields that I'm in, you need to just double down on that and just continue to do that, right? So... I kind of challenged that assumption because I had so many interests and so many areas where I thought I could bring value that why did I have to limit myself to just doing one thing? And so that was just the one idea. And the other, I, I, the other reason was that there's a certain amount of risk mitigation, right? You want to make sure that you're absolutely, before you're going to leave what you're involved in clinically or otherwise, that the next thing that you do 
is absolutely what you want to do, 110%. So I felt like I have a lot of interests. You know, I have a lot of things where I can bring value. I'm used to jumping into challenging situations, you know, like crazy emergency rooms. Why not use that same type of mindset to bring value to lots of different areas of my interests? So that's kind of the general base of kind of how this all started and why I am where I am. <laughs> so then where do you begin, right? Because I'm sure a lot of my interests, a, uh, a lot of my listeners are thinking, you know what? It would really be cool to be a venture advisor or a venture partner or a founder. You know, we got a great idea, but let's just start. Let's just start with whichever one of those ventures would be the easiest to get started with. So I think I, the way I think about it is just get started with something. And here's something that I, that is very tangible because I want to make sure I'm not speaking in just generalities and vague things is that something tangible that I did that I felt like what broke me out of this era, this clinical medicine kind of rut or burnout or whatever you talk about, what it is, demoralization or any of these terms that get thrown around is a couple of things. First thing was, I got to start getting out of my circle of influence, which is mostly physicians, right? So I started talking to people that are outside of that, right? So these were investors, advisors, consultants, bankers, venture capitalists, and thinking about, well, how many conversations do I have in a week with physicians? You know, if I have 20 conversations with physicians, I should have at least three times as many with people outside of my circle of influence. And just having that mindset of, in order for me to transition out of just the clinical realm to something else, I need to be talking to these people more. I need to be interacting with them more. So that was the first kind of mindset change I had in that every week I would make sure that, okay, who am I talking to? Hold on. Did you find these people on like Tinder for entrepreneurship? Like, so you started swiping left on the physicians and right on the venture capitalists? Like, where do you find these people? That's exactly the segue, right? So, and that's the reason that people, you know, I think that uh, people expect there to be a linear path to this. It's not the case. I'll tell you what I did. I made it a goal to reach out to three to five people on LinkedIn every week for a year that I didn't know. And I'd say, hey, this is what I am. This is what I'm doing. And with no expectation, you know, not what am I going to get out of this? More, nothing transactional just discovery and learning, right? Like, how am I going to learn from this person? Let me let them know what I'm doing. And maybe there's an additional person they can connect me to, to continue on this journey. Wait, sorry. Because this is what it makes me think of. It makes me think of when I was young and single and would see a girl at a bar and I never knew what to say. Never. And so I would walk up and just go, hi, right? Hi. Okay. Just these, these, you know, coming, going up, approaching a random person on LinkedIn and just saying, Hey, my name is Dr. Vipalkella. I am an emergency medicine physician. It's very nice to meet you. I think that I should put a, maybe a little touch of context on it. Um, because I was certainly, you're probably a couple steps ahead of me. Like I was not even the guy that would do that at the bar. I was just sitting in the back. Well, we both ended up in the same place. So somehow married with kids. What I think. Certain things that do help are, you know, you tend to follow certain people on LinkedIn, you read what they're writing, you know, you have, there's obviously you're going to be drawn to things, certain things that people write. For me, it was 
people that are writing about health tech, they're writing about entrepreneurship and digital health, people writing about leadership, people that these are the kind of topics that I was interested in. So find those topics that you're interested in, those three to five topics that you enjoy reading about. Like if somebody said, hey, would you read this just casually on your own? Would you read that? If that's what you find yourself drawn to that, you know, when I'm on LinkedIn, I usually just end up reading the whole article on X or Y. So if there's three to five of those, well, who are writing those, right? I would usually follow up within the message or even separately request a message and say, hey, I enjoyed your article, not in a very sincere way. And I remember writing these messages like, just wondering if you'd like to connect to share some ideas. And yes, of course, you have to be ready for a little bit of rejection, right? Getting ghosted, just no one replying. But at the same time, the people that do reply are going to be really, really happy that you connected. And it's funny that people, you know, it's like the, the book that I force my kids to read, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Yes, my kids are younger, so they're not quite there yet. But that is definitely on that short list of books that I want my kids to read at some point. Okay, sorry, little segue, and then we'll get back to this. Name one more book that's on that list. Name one more book that's on the list that you're going to make your kids read. Probably the one thing, you know, so the, there's a book called The What Thing. I don't know The One Thing. There's another book I love, which I don't give my kids yet, but there's a book that's out there that I read. It was called How to Do Cool Shit. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely don't want word in my kids' vocabulary yet. Three and a half, five and seven, but we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the concept was just how do you do things that you really think are yeah. cool and incredible, valuable, and break out of this rut that many people feel of doing the same thing over and over. And then there, I'll give you a third book, which I'm sure you've read. And I've actually told my teenage daughter, because she's 18 now, I said, why don't you read this book? Because because she was always wrapped up into what other people were saying. I said, you know what? You need to read the subtle of the subtle art of not giving enough. Wow, you're all about the profanity and the titles. <laughs> well, I know <laughs> the tension grabber it works. Yeah. So those are some really good books. But the one thing I told my kids is one of the things in the book that they talk about is people love to hear the sound of their own voice, their own name, and they love to talk. Right. So if you allow someone to just share their experience and talk, you're going to get a lot of knowledge from that, and you don't really have to say much. A lot of physicians feel like, and inappropriately, that I've just been doing this clinical X. I'm an ER doc, I'm a GI doc, I'm an ENT, whatever it is, this is all I know. And not appreciating all of the additional skills that you've acquired throughout your 5, 10, 15, 20 year career. And you undervalue that and you don't really see how it fits into the bigger picture. So what that allowed me to do is to say, you know what, um, I'm talking to you know, this investor, this banker. And I can actually translate that experience to a time that I had in the ER, you know, and how I had to problem solve and how it kind of is similar in a certain way. So it helped me relate to them more. And the other thing I'll say is people are really interested in hearing about physician experiences, you know, because it's not something they usually talk about. It's not something that they hear about. So they're really interested in this side of things. And it allows you to give a really, really unique experience into some, into conversations that they don't normally have. So that's kind of how I did that. And I committed to that because I'll say consistency is another big part of this, right? Doing this over and over every week is sometimes disheartening in that you may not get anywhere, but if you do that consistently for one year, you'll make a lot of progress after 365 days. Now you've written, so how many people in total do you think that you reached out to on LinkedIn over the course of that year? 
I'd say at least 300. Okay. Okay. Probably 60 to 70% of those were just conversations where not much came from it. But the 30, 40% of the conversations that I did have were really valuable and I learned a lot. So yeah, that's over a year. I think it truly was about 300 conversations. So then how did, just give us an example of how one of those conversations translated into opportunity. Absolutely. So I'll just tell you that I was working with somebody who uh, I met on LinkedIn, who was also doing some legal work. And she said, we should start working together. We started doing some legal consulting together. She was an epidemiologist and had similar interests as mine. So we started working together after LinkedIn connection. And then about a month into it, she introduced me to another friend of hers who was running a food tech business and needed and was looking for advisory board members. There was nobody like me on his board, right? I was the only physician. It was a food tech business. And I was telling him about the opportunities with food and medicine. That's one of my interests, social determinants of health and how food insecurity is a big problem in this country and how you don't think about it in the, the typical way of getting access to healthy foods and how that could be an important part of the business or important business strategy. So a month later, I'm on the board. Interesting. You wouldn't think about that for an emergency medicine physician, right? You would think like an endocrinologist should be the one because your specialty works so much with social determinants of health, right? You were the one that end up seeing the patients that continue to have those same issues and they keep on ending back in your emergency department. Yeah, that's really true, Brad. And that gives me a really great perspective about all the things that I do see in the ER, right? All the different, the variety of different disease states. And that's helpful because companies are trying to do so many different things, but that's correct. So the social determinants aspect of why do people come into the emergency room and what are the problems that you should try to solve for, that perspective is really helpful. Back to your original question is just, here's an example of getting on LinkedIn, meeting somebody randomly, connecting. We find out we have the same shared interests. She lives locally. We ended up doing business together, had a relationship, and then she introduced me to another person. And within two months, I'm on the board. And now that person has actually become a mentor and advisor to me that I meet quarterly and is one of the most connected people I know. And from there, I've probably had another 10 or 15 introductions of people that I've met that have been valuable to my experience as well. So it's a small thing, right? But it leads to multiple. It's very incremental in how it can, in how things can stack onto each other. How valuable, how valuable do you think your MBA has been in these situations? Do you think it gets you more of a foot in the door and gets you a little more street cred? Or do you think it, you know, for those who would attempt to follow in your footsteps, is it something that you would recommend for them? Well, I'll tell you that my parents always put value to value in the number and the types of degrees that you had. So when I was thinking about making a transition from medicine, my default was, well, I should probably get some more education. So I went to business school while I was working and it was a great experience. But at the end of the day, and I tell people this, I could probably count on one hand the number of people that have asked me about my MBA over the past five years. It's really that it's not inconsequential. But what I'm trying to say is all of the knowledge, all of the language that I could speak, the fundamentals that I can understand, all of those things you don't have to spend $80,000 for. You know, you can learn those things for free, right? So I think people don't do that. And maybe I didn't have the discipline to do that. And I needed an MBA to force me to do that. 
That's certainly possible. But I always tell people that if you're trying to get into the things that like that I'm doing, health tech, med device, advising, venture, you need to just have the things that they're going to value you for most for are going to be <laughs> domain expertise. Like, are you somebody that knows this product or this device or this space extremely well? Are you an orthopedist that knows joint really well or the MSK space really well and can speak to that? What is your network? How many doors can you open within 12 months for them? And then on a third level and probably much less so will be things like on the clinical side, operational side, but those are usually at a later stage and there's probably some value in product design and development too. But if you're most of the opportunities that are going to come on an advising level are going to be at early stage companies where they're looking for traction. Can you open networks to get into, you know, health systems? Can you help us raise money? Or can we put you on a sales team to close deals because you can speak to our product or our, whatever we're doing really intelligently? And I was just speaking to somebody today about this exact same thing. They were doing a device and they're trying to get into pre-hospital systems. And they said, this is the exact thing they said to me just this afternoon. We need somebody that can speak to the value of this device that we have and how it's important to patients and how it's saving lives. When we get into a room to try to pitch this, it doesn't resonate because we're not physicians, right? So there is value in that. And you should be, it definitely is a sales type of role, but that's value. So I always tell people to think about in those ways, like those are the different buckets in which, in, in, if you work at a community hospital, certainly there are more academic emergency physicians than me that have published many, many things and have much deeper knowledge. So that domain expertise part, I said, well, that's probably not going to be me, right? I can speak to things, but my value is probably going to be on the other two components, right? In the networks and being on the sales team and product and stuff like that. Yeah. The sales team, to me, this sounds the most interesting because, right, they might be able to come to the hospital system with analytics about how, how they're going to save the hospital money. And if they can't, they should check out Charm Economics, who has been on the podcast before, who'll be able to help them make that use case scenario and have the analytics to be able to back up why it's going to save the hospital money or make the hospital money. But the physician's going to be the one with the clinical experience that's going to be able to like speak to specific scenarios and tell stories and anecdotes. You know, human beings operate by anecdote more so than by data. We're not data-driven machines, we're story-driven machines. So if you're a physician and you're able to tell some patient-related stories, hypothetical or not, you're going to be able to change some minds from a sales perspective. So that to me, at least for, <laughs> for my skill set, I think, sounds like a fun and interesting thing to do. So when you were on LinkedIn, if you had to do it all over again, because now you know, like, you know, testing the waters here and there and sending out tons of messages, how do we figure out, or how did, or did you figure out what were the highest ROI conversations or what were the highest ROI people or types of people that you would, if you had to do it again, these are the ones that you would focus more on? Yeah. And, you know, looking in retrospect, maybe that wasn't the most efficient way of going about things, you know, to do it. I certainly agree with that. You only ended up not like six six or seven advisory boards. Clearly, it wasn't a successful strategy. I say it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, there are many days where you say, oh, man, what am I doing? Like, you just feel a lot of defeat. It's like podcasting. True. So I will say that 
maybe something that add a little bit more nuance to, to my approach if I had to do it again. I tell people this too, is like, think about in your Rolodex, and I actually have a Rolodex now, which I've created. And this is from one of my advisors who said he has his Rolodex under lock and key in a bank. It's all, and it's in his brain and it's in his bank. And no one's ever going to take that from him because it's the highest value thing that he has. And I said, oh, that's really interesting. I'm going to create one too. So every week I'm probably adding one, two uh, people on there of, in what they do and like where I am with that relationship. But I will say to people, like, think about who, you know, the top three people that you know, that maybe have the most influence doesn't have to be physicians or healthcare. Just who are those people that, you know, can be part of your family. What's some network that you have and what's stopping you from going to those people and just having a conversation and start there start at the top instead of starting at the bottom of the pyramid, you know, because starting from there, you're going to get some really great introductions. And so that's, I think if I would have been a little bit more strategic, so that'd be one thing. The other thing would be to just get yourself out there more. Get yourself out there into functions, events, meetups, you know, that you think that you're not sure where this is going to go, but you know, you want to get out there. So like, for example, I was at an event this weekend in DC and it was probably the highest kind of concentration of trial lawyers that I'd ever seen. And it was about two hours of my time, two to three hours of my time, nice little dinner. But that right there was probably worth a couple months of LinkedIn outreach right there. Those are really high value things. And some of those things you may have to pay for, right? You may have to spend a ticket for a dinner on, you need to get an invitation from something. But I don't have a problem in spending money on those types of things when I consider it as all part of business development. That's just the cost of doing business. It's tax deductible too. It's not as expensive as it seems. There you go. <laughs> that true. That's true. Yeah, actually, I had an episode a couple of weeks ago with Dr. Unachuku, who's Entree MD. On, she's like all over social media. And she said the same thing. Listen, you're going to have to spend some money in order to get into these spaces, right? And as physicians, it doesn't necessarily sit well with us. Being like, I'm a doctor. I should just be invited. But like, this is how you get into these spaces. You have to pay. And there is going to be value there as long as they're, you know, the appropriate spaces. So you got to choose those wisely. So wisely. So is someone doing expert witness work, trial lawyers seem like there's going to be a high ROI to that meeting. Yeah. Yeah. And you develop some great relationships and you'd be surprised. Like I just, from that meeting... I met somebody that was in the legal startup space, you know, because I'm also in the health tech and tech space. And we had a great conversation just this afternoon about the software, their AI based software they're doing to kind of replace the whole court reporting kind of in-person paradigm. So like really interesting stuff that crosses the lines of legal and business. And what I found is a lot of crossover and things that you can do. You have to just be in one domain. You can be crossing over a lot as well. So let's talk about Curato Health. That is your baby, right? That's, you're the CEO, you're the founder. So first, what is it? So as I had gone through the past, you know, a couple of years doing all this stuff and building this network, one of the things that I definitely saw over and over again with you have these small practices that are trying to stay viable, right? They need some information, they need strategy, they need tech solutions, all these things to keep them viable, improve their performance, improve their revenue, improve their efficiency. But many people just practice that I'd spoken to just don't have that, right? They're just not aware of these things. So what I did was the initial idea was to create just a bunch of strategic advisors like myself and consult for companies. But as I had gone through, as I went through that, the bigger idea was 
create this network of high-level advisors, physicians, health, health tech people, as well as vendors that are doing things that are really best in class and bring all of that together into one platform. So what we do is we go to, say, a practice, primary care practice or a specialty practice, kind of evaluate their performance and how they're doing, what their needs are, what are their pain points in terms of their operational efficiency, their revenue, contracts, value-based care, whatever they're doing, and then try to bring some value into one of those things. And we do that through you know our own consulting expertise, our partners that we have, what we brought onto our platform, and then we come in as kind of a strategic. One thing we're not is a marketplace. The other thing I had said, I didn't want to bring hundreds of solutions on. It was more that these are personally vetted by me over hundreds of hours multiple you know, conversations of vendors that I've been speaking to. I'm going to bring them on. If I bring them on, I'm going to tell you that they're the best in class in X. And you, and if you have trust in me, then you will, you will bring them on as well. That's kind of how we, we have built this, built Curato. Isn't there like specialties tend to be so different from each other and so specific in terms of what their revenue streams might be, what their pain points are, right? I mean, everybody's got the same like EMR and documentation and billing and coding, right? There are some ENTs out there, I'm an otolaryngologist, right? So that are going to want to work on an allergy revenue stream. They don't want to do more allergy testing or maybe ophthalmologists want to, actually, I don't even know what ophthalmologists do, something with the eye drops. I don't know. So their oncologists are going to have an infusion center that they're going to use for a revenue stream. Like all these different specialties have different potential revenue streams, how are you able to handle that variety? We don't go, we don't try to solve everything for everyone, right? So the areas that we focus on are primary care, cardiology, you know, some GI, a few other specialties, and then some fee for primarily fee-for-service practices because we also have a, mar a marketing arm. And just to do those things that we know really well, right? So yeah, you're right. Could I go into Optho or ENT and try to do some problem solving for sure, but I'd rather just focus on the things that we know well. So for example, we do things on the RPM and CCM side. We do sleep solutions. We do weight loss solutions. We do, we consult, you know, an operational consultant. We do contract management. Those are, th and some of these things are universal. For example, some groups have renewed their contracts for five years and are still working on the same contract in five years for five years ago. So that's a great opportunity to come in and just provide value right away, right? So what, Bram, well, yeah, I agree. We're not trying to solve everything. There's certainly like those super specialized practices may not be the right fit for us. You know, you need to, you probably would need someone else for that. We're trying to just get the lowest lying fruit and there's quite a bit out there. Right. There aren't that many, you know, some of them are these niche specialties. There aren't that many of us out there, but like cardiologists, gastroenterologists, primary care physicians, you're dealing with like a large quantity of physicians who are, there's, and there's going to be a lot of overlap there in terms of, because they're all primary care, you know, they're all internal medicine trained and then fellowship trained. So I'm sure there's a lot of overlap in what they do and how they do it. Absolutely. Totally agree. No, and I'll tell you that interestingly, as we've gone through this with now some other addition, new opportunities are presenting themselves. So we're coming into the health tech space a little bit, speaking with early stage companies and how even abroad that are coming to us and saying, how do we come into the U.S. market? You know, so we have a company that may be FDA approved, but how do we navigate the U.S. market? You know, so part of our, my vision going forward is to develop a complete go-to-market team where we can do anything from clinical to regulatory to marketing 
to fundraising to get some of these companies that are really building really interesting and valuable products all over the world, like in Israel and in Latin America and Mexico and India, and bring them to the U.S. You know, so I think that there is a need for those types of things as well. Yeah, they don't know how to necessarily navigate our regulatory space, since our regulatory space tends to be a lot more strict than in other countries. So they have products and they'd work, but to even begin to navigate that is probably the biggest challenge, correct? They even have holding companies in the U.S. I spoke to one that already has a holding company in Miami, but because the regulatory and CMS and you know, navigating Medicare is so daunting. And it's not intuitive. Like there's a hundred, you know, there's so much, there's, as you know, there's, there's so many different things to know about it that they just stay away, which is a lost opportunity for practices and patients. Absolutely. So what's something that you wish was taught in medical school that you learned either from business school or from your experience with Curato Health, with like building a company, building a product? I think two things would be business is not linear. Right. I think in med, med school, you get taught that, okay, you study for this, you get to the, you study for these exams, you do well, you do well in medical school, you can get this specialty, you can do well in this residency, you can get into this. So it's very linear and it's like, okay, I need these scores, I need these grades, I need these recs, I need this X, Y, and Z. I can get this, right? It's, it's pretty laid out for you what you need to do with some variation, but for the most part, it's pretty consistent. Business is definitely not that, right? So it's not linear at all. And it's also the reason I think most physicians don't stay away from it is that, you know, it doesn't go like in this straight line slope equals one kind of graph, right? It's all over the place. And that's kind of the life cycle of an entrepreneur is that you have to be okay with, obviously everyone says that you have to be okay with a lot of rejection and failure. You have to be okay with challenging your ideas like on a daily basis and saying, all right, is this even what? What am I solving for? Like, what's the problem? Am I really bringing value? How am I bringing value? And I've, I'll tell you personally, over the past 12 months, that's my business is not even a year old. We've gone through many different iterations on what we, we think the pain points are and how we can solve them. But if you have the mindset of that's just part of the journey, of course, we're going to be doing that. That's just what we need to do rather than, you know, I, in the first few months, it was more of the, oh my God, how do I screw up so badly? Like, how did I not know this? And beating myself over the head with it. It was more that, no, just get to failure fast. Just fat, quickly fail and move on. Quickly fail and move on. Quickly fail. And that's okay. The earlier you do that, the more you know what you shouldn't be doing. And that's actually strategic. It's not like some personal issue that you, you know, it's just part of like the entrepreneurial journey. And um, that's really not something that I ever was ever taught in med school. In med school, it's all about doing things right and doing things perfect. If you fail as an emergency medicine physician, People could die, right? Like, just do it, but do it quickly. You know what? You've got a bunch of other patients. Just fail with this one, and then you can move on to the next patient. Yeah, that doesn't work in our space. It doesn't work, right? So you have to a little. You have to get out of that mindset a little bit and embrace that kind of that chaos of entrepreneurship and trying to find something in there that works, right? And and be okay with that, right? But you know, the people that I speak to that you know. And they may not be for them, like knowing that that amount of uncertainty and there's an opportunity cost, of course, right? Anything that you're doing, you know, there are days where you may not be making any money. You'll say, well, I didn't make any money today. That's why you should still stick with your part-time 
physician gig. So you're still getting income from somewhere. Yeah. And that's another good piece of advice I'd give as well as, yeah, unless you, I mean, that's something I did not do. I did not completely drop everything and just jump ship. Guys, okay? I kept multiple things going. And I know that when they speak to entrepreneurs, they say you should put your 110% in there and do this and just do it all and go for it. That's when you're 22 and don't have a family to support and can live in your parents' basement. That's right. That's right. So when you're 47 and you have three kids and one going to college and yeah, that all sounds good in theory. That's not going to happen. So how do you make it work for you? And, you know, there can be room for entrepreneurs that are mid-career entrepreneurs like you and me that are doing things, you know, they're still involved in clinical medicine, but also want to be doing other things. So I think that I would tell people that there's definitely room for that. You know, you don't have to feel like you need to just give up everything and move on. You can try to balance multiple things and take a little extra, if it takes a little extra time, so be it. But it's going to make you happy and more fulfilled. And interestingly for me, it's given me a lot more enthusiasm for the clinical side. Now having done this, <laughs> which is ironic and something I didn't expect. No, that it makes sense. It makes sense because it gives you an opportunity to step away, give like a see it through a different lens and then come back at it with some more appreciation as opposed to it just being the grind that it sometimes can be. I mean, especially in your specialty. Holy cow. Yeah. And I really undervalue emergency medicine in terms, I used to at least, and it's like a lab, right? Like I, I'm, all these patients are like little data points that I have of like su successes or failures in our system, right? Every time they come back to the emergency room for a readmission, that's like an extra data point for me. You see opportunity, each of these from your entrepreneurial lens. Amazing. Amazing. So I'm guessing the best place for our listeners to find you is TikTok. No, is LinkedIn, right? So Vipulkella, V-I-P-U-L-K-E-L-L-A -L 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 on, on LinkedIn, correct? Yes. And I've tried to be much more engaging on LinkedIn. Just I had to take time, you know, I did get sucked away, but I made it, I made it an effort to try to post probably not nearly as much as you, Brad, but like just to try to be more consistent and be more active and just to have more of a presence, you know, because I said a lot of good things happen on LinkedIn. I would say from all the social media outlets, that's number one for me in terms of just professional developments, giving me a lot of great opportunities. So I'd say for anyone that's just thinking to get out there, and just looking from a place to start, you can start with that. It's like no risk. If you, as long as you don't mind a little bit of, if someone doesn't get back to you, you don't take it personally, just go for it. You have nothing to lose. Get you ready know, to you, mingle. Worst, and at best, you just learn something from somebody. It's a great opportunity that you should take advantage of. Well, great advice. And I have a feeling this is going to be the first of many conversations that we're going to have with all you've got going on. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us and for being the inspiration for us to, put ourselves out there. And thanks for your time. I love it. Well, thanks for having me, Brad. It was a great time. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsor. At Pearson Rabbits, they understand that life can change in an instant. It's hard to imagine that a sudden illness, injury, or catastrophic event could put you and your family in a devastating financial situation. Physician-founded and physician-focused, Pearson Rabbits builds human connections before they create quotes. Visit PearsonRabbits.com today and embark on a journey of safeguarding your future. Thanks for listening. I have a favor to ask. You listened to the episode until the end, which means you either fell asleep or you really liked the episode. So please share it or like it or comment on a social media post. 
or write us a five-star review, something. It would really help me out. And maybe what you learned from this episode can help someone else too. The views expressed in this episode are those of the interviewer and interviewee and don't represent the views of their employer or even their significant other. Even though the magic of podcasting make it sound like I'm talking directly to you. This is not a doctor-patient relationship and this is not medical advice or financial advice or really any advice. Thank us again for listening to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.